Amen, indeed. Thanks, Horace. Um, Please do open your Bibles back up to Exodus, chapter 13. We're carrying on our journey here. And uh, if you're joining us here today for the first time, great to have you with us. You're joining at an exciting moment. We're on this journey through a book of the Old Testament called Exodus, and we've called it Exodus, Know the Lord, because the book is all about coming to know God through personal experience. We're thinking about how the events of this period of history, which was about three and a half thousand years ago, it's a long, long time ago, the mid-second millennium BC, how those ancient things teach us essential lessons for our lives right now, because they teach us about God and about how our hearts work. And we're joining these Israelites Uh, the Hebrew people, on a journey. They've just lived through 10 plagues that God has unleashed on the nation of Egypt, which has enslaved them and wouldn't let them go. They've lived through those plagues, but they haven't suffered them. They've just witnessed the greatest power in the world, Pharaoh and his kingdom, humiliated and defeated. They've been spared the death of a firstborn by taking refuge, strangely, under the blood of a lamb spread on doorposts. They've come out of Egypt unscathed. And as they were leaving, they asked their neighbors for support. On our street, we have a very busy WhatsApp group here in Chesington. And neighbors are always asking for help and support and uh, occasionally getting rid of stuff from their house that they want to get rid of, which is always gladly snapped up. Imagine going to your neighbors and asking for silver, gold, and fine material. That's what they did. No WhatsApp. And the neighbors gladly gave them riches. It says in chapter 12, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they received some back payment for all those long years of slavery. And many people were so impressed by what was happening that they wanted to be part of it as well. People, maybe some of them had found faith in Israel's God, Yahweh, the Lord. Perhaps others just glimpsed a new life. In fact, we know from later on that some of them were just riffraff who came along for the ride and caused a lot of trouble. So a mixed multitude of people came out with them, along with large droves of livestock, flocks, and herds. It was one of the greatest turning points in history. It says that 600,000 men came out on foot, plus women and children, free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, free at last. But within a couple of weeks, they were feeling miserable and wanted to go home. Still basically on the borders of Egypt, by the way. They hadn't got that far. It's a bit like those children who are in the back seat of the car. Oh, we need a yeah, they yet. Oh, I want to go home. Now, what's going on here? And underneath that, what does this passage, this part of Scripture, intend to do in our lives? because that's why it's here. Now, we have to grasp a vital principle uh, if we want to follow Jesus, a vital principle for the life of faith if we're going to keep going and keep growing. And it's this. The life of faith is a relationship of trust. And that trust needs to be ever-deepening. That's my big idea today. The life of faith is a relationship of trust, and that relationship needs to be ever-deepening. 
That's just what this text, I believe, wants to address in our lives today. I think we could not be thinking about anything more important this morning. You could not be in any other place that would be more significant than to hear this. Not because I'm a great preacher or this is a great sermon, no. But because we have a great God who is speaking. Because we are just like those Israelites. God leads you out of your old way of life to follow him. It's fantastic. Some people experience a kind of honeymoon period when they become a Christian. And, but we tend to assume that now everything will be sorted and life will go well. But that's so wrong. That's not how it works. It's not how God works. God isn't interested in a quick fix. God isn't interested in speed dating. He wants a long-term relationship. A lifelong relationship with you. That is a relationship built on trust. But our hearts are very quick to forget. The person who is full of faith one week can be full of doubt the next. And I know this because I'm that person. I can have such strong faith on Sunday and such terrible faith on Monday afternoon. No offense to the staff team. (laughs) That wasn't in the script, all right? Now, this happens when life circumstances change and we're faced with new challenges, and you know that. But there is one particular time in life where we need to pay attention, I think, and I want to think about that today. It's in times of major transition, when we're going through a major transition in our life. That's where the pinch point happens, I think, for many of us. When we're facing a big life transition or going through one, things emerge things emerge. You start to learn more about yourself. Things come out that you didn't know were there. And actually, it's an opportunity to learn more about the Lord as well. Because what he's interested in, the life of faith, is a relationship of trust, and it needs to be ever-deepening. A former colleague of mine, whose name was Phil, was driving on the motorway in convoy with a friend who had an old car. Phil was in front. The friend in the old car was behind. This old car hadn't been on the motorway for some time. But it seemed to be in good working order. On the outside, everything looked okay. At one point, the traffic slowed down to maybe 30, 40 miles an hour. And Phil saw that a car wheel had overtaken him and was rolling quickly down the hard shoulder. The car wheel actually overtook him. And as he was looking at it, he realized, that's my mate's wheel. It came off. See, the situation... This new situation of going off the driveway and onto the motorway had exposed something in the car that was a weakness. The transition. Now, when we go through these big life transitions, trust can wobble. We secretly think, or our hearts kind of say, our unconscious says, whoa, you know, I was okay to trust God before, but I'm not sure he can handle this. There's a pastor called Richard Kaufman. He put it like this. You're at the end of your rope. You cry out, God, please help me. And God says, trust me, let go. And you say, is there anyone else up there who can help me? (laughs) Now, what are these major life transitions? I've thought of seven. There will be others. Here are seven. From child to adult. 
A child has a certain kind of loving, innocent, trusting faith. When a child becomes an adult, that's a big transition and it can be traumatic for faith because faith needs to deepen at that point, doesn't it? This is why very often kids who've grown up in a, in a, a loving Christian home or have been taught well in a church go off to university and they, the wheels come off because they have to make the transition from a child to an adult faith. From school to the workplace. Becoming a parent. Becoming a leader of some kind. Leaders are under so much pressure in our culture. I'm hearing about leadership crises every week. Becoming a leader will test your faith. Going from healthy to sick. And this can include other major bodily changes. Going uh, ladies, into the menopause for, for many women will, will be a deep faith challenge. Don't underestimate that. Going into retirement. What, what is my life all about now? And seventhly, preparing for death. And you're thinking, well, this is very cheerful today. Actually, just to get a little bit more cheerful, we should have been preparing for death all along. Because it's not just going to happen when we've planned it on our in our calendar. There's seven major tra life transitions there. And at every point, remember, the life of faith is a relationship of trust. And that needs to be ever deepening. And we're going to look now at the greatest example of salvation in the Bible. In the old, well, no, not in the Bible, in the Old Testament. The greatest example of salvation, the exodus out of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea are the kind of textbook picture of salvation in the Old Testament. The biblical writers always look back to this time and refer to it. And I want to notice three things here about the Lord, three things we learn. Firstly, he is leading even when your heart fails. Secondly, he is loving even when your heart deceives. Thirdly, he will bring you through as a new creation. He's leading, he's loving, and he will bring you through. Firstly, he is leading even when your heart fails. Look at verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 17, when we, uh, where the reading began. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So he led them around by the desert road. And there's a lot of details here about the road. Now, what's all this, what is all this about? Where they were in the north of Egypt, they lived in the northeast in a land called Goshen. That's where the Hebrew people were concentrated. The quickest way, if you wanted to get to Canaan, to the promised land, was to go by the coast road. It was almost like a highway, like a motorway. And a lovely view of the, of the sea as well up there, the Mediterranean on the west side. And that would be the quickest way. And you could probably get from north Egypt up to Canaan, modern-day Israel, in about two weeks. It's not that long a journey. That's the quickest route. But God doesn't take them by that route. He takes them by a circuitous route that almost looks like they're going around in circles. And they're going through the desert on, we might say, the back roads. Now, why does he do that? The text gives us the answer because up there on that coast road were some major military 
garrisons, some big forts, and armed uh, outposts guarding the, the sea and the trade routes. And so that would have been a place where the Israelites would have had to face battle very quickly, and they are not ready for that. Look at what God says in verse 17. If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. God is very compassionate. He's thinking ahead. He knows his people. He's concerned that they're totally unprepared to fight any other military force at this point. So he leads them in a place where they won't face that kind of opposition right away. And he leads them through the desert road, which actually leads them, strangely, towards the Red Sea. Quite possibly towards what we call the Gulf of Suez, north part of the Red Sea. Now, in verse 18, it says that God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. Now, notice what it says here. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. My uh, Old Testament professor and a great, great Christian man and a scholar, Douglas Stewart, uh, argues that this, our translation really lets us down at this point. Dr. Stewart said, it doesn't literally say they were ready for battle. It literally says something like they were organized by 50s. So they're organized into groups of 50. Now that is a military formation in that, of those times. But are they really ready for battle? What weapons do you think these guys had? They've been slaves for decades. They've been living in Egypt in servitude for hundreds of years. They've come out with their families. And yeah, we know they've got gold, silver, and cloth. But this is not a highly armed, trained military unit. They probably have some short swords. They don't have a chariot among the whole 600,000 of them. So they are really ill-equipped, actually, at this point for battle. And look who's coming after them. Chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them. And they said, what have we done? We've let them go, and we've lost their services. And they regret their decision. They've no doubt heard reports. It did look at this point like the Israelites were completely lost in the desert, wandering around, and everyone's thinking, they don't even know about the coast road. Look, they, got, they, they went off there, you know. No sat-nav. Even the sat-nav doesn't work out there. Probably going to fall into the Red Sea. So they're thinking, all right, they've got lost. They're confused. They're probably tired by now. They're probably uh, getting dehydrated. And Pharaoh rules the most powerful nation in the world. And he has at his disposal chariots. Now, again, you probably think about films where people are riding chariots around, you know. Think about the chariot as the ancient equivalent of the tank. When tanks first came into warfare in a serious way in the, in the 20th century, they changed everything. A horse and cavalry was no good against a tank. A tank could come and roll through a house. This is, the chariot is the most deadly instrument for human destruction that is known in their time. And Pharaoh has hundreds of them high-quality, heavy machinery with trained military soldiers who can ride these things and bring them. And 600 chariots come, plus other chariots. And so what comes after the recently freed slaves? The full force 
of the Egyptian military. And whatever ground the Israelites have made on foot is quickly lost, isn't it, as these guys go hell-bent after them, and they overtake them. And here they are, camp, a big encampment with all their stuff and all their families and their flocks, and they're there by the Red Sea. So there's nowhere to go. So God has led them through the desert into a cul-de-sac. And all looks lost. Now just imagine what it was like for these Israelites. They start to see dust rising in the distance. Massive cloud of dust coming. Whoa! And then they start to realize what it is. It's the army. It's chariots coming. And it says in our text, they were terrified. Of course they were. Absolutely terrified. Word probably spread. You know, there's going to be a bloodbath. We're going to be massacred. And their heart fails. Their heart fails. Now, there's something very important that we mustn't miss in what we've been reading so far. It's the words to do with leading. Chapter 13, verse 17. God did not lead them on the road through the coast. He led them somewhere else. Verse 18. God led them up to this road. Verse 21 of chapter 13. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud. And by night, he went ahead of them in a pillar of fire. He's leading them. Verse, chapter 13, verse 22. This pillar didn't leave its place. God doesn't go off for a tea break. The Lord is with them, leading them. Chapter 14, verse 2. He says, tell them to take this route. They are to camp by the sea. Go there. Turn back. It's, it's very, very clear leading. The whole thing is a divine plan to get Pharaoh right to the Red Sea. In other words, God has led them here. And he's given them his presence. This reassuring presence in the day. There's a huge cloud, a pillar, like a dark cloud going out in front of them. And at night, it's lit up like fire. That is a comforting presence. There's a blazing fire going on ahead. You're not in the dark here. God has clearly brought them to this point. They've, they've seen evidence again and again of his power and his concern. But in spite of all that, when you look at the current circumstances, they're backed up against the sea. They face the fury of the recently bereaved Pharaoh and his, who wants his slaves back. And so their heart fails. Now, how do we do this? God's been leading you through your life, but now your heart's failing. How are you, honestly, how are you doing right now in your walk with Jesus? If you're going through one of those big life transitions, your heart may fail. You become scared. They were terrified. Our hearts fail. We become full of regret about the past and full of anxiety about the future. Fear. And fear is the opposite of trust. And once fear gets hold of you, it, it can drain your confidence. It can take away your sleep, take away your appetite, takes, certainly takes away your joy. I don't know if I can trust you anymore. Now, why would God lead people into such a position? 
Remember our, our main point. The life of faith is a relationship of trust. And that relationship needs to be ever deepening. And what God is leading you to is to say, trust me now deeper than you've ever trusted me before. He's leading even when your heart fails. Secondly, he is loving even when your heart deceives. This point could be a bit quicker. But this is what happens when your heart fails. Is your heart actually starts to tell you lies and to deceive you. Notice carefully what the Israelites do when they see the army coming in the distance. Chapter 14, verse 10. They look up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. Good start. You know, good point. Say your prayers. That's a good, good place to start. They're crying out to God in prayer. But notice what quickly happens in the next two verses. Verse 11. They then said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out of the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us up out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now here's the thing, they didn't say anything like that. <laughs> they never said that. In fact, back in chapter 4, when the plan was first revealed, and Moses did the special signs that God had given him. The people believed and worshipped God. They were really up for it in chapter 4. They never said, uh, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. They never wanted that in the past. It's absolute nonsense. Dr. Stewart calls it an example of recovered memory. You remember something about your past, but you change the memory to fit with your current feelings. Another commentator calls it delusional talk. It is delusional about their past. It wasn't better back in Egypt. The Egyptians were killing their baby boys. The Egyptians made them make bricks without straw, but insisted on the same quota, in order to break their spirit. That's how they were being treated. They didn't want to stay there. But now they've, they've revised the past. They're actually in denial. They've seen the ten plagues. They've seen that the Lord is on their side. But now they are delusional about it. And they recreate their own story. And we do this too. We recreate our past. We recreate history to fit with our current feelings. And this is what happens when your emotions take charge and you stop trusting God. And you know, once again, we're particularly prone to it in those big life transitions. We forget all that we've learned about Jesus. We forget all the blessings and benefits and gifts that he's given to us throughout our life. We forget those many moments in the past where he was there for us and we knew it. He provided for us, sometimes in amazing ways, he rescued us from situations. We, we forget all of that. So the lesson here is don't follow your heart. You know, that's the opposite of the message of pretty much every Hollywood film, especially ones for kids. They all say, you've got to follow your heart. <laughs> don't follow your heart. This is where it leads you. Now, how are you doing right now on this, friends? Just slow down for a moment. 
Just think honestly, how does your heart deceive you in one of life's challenges? I'll speak personally for a minute, and I'm not doing this because I want people to come and uh, give me a hug afterwards or anything. Not, not that I'm against hugs, all right? I tend to uh, do this about my career, about my work. I went through a big transition to leave one way of life to, to become a minister. And I think my heart is always saying, did we really do the right thing? So whenever anything goes wrong in the church, I'm not talking just about here, but my previous 12 years, this is where the heart goes. Oh, you, you weren't called. What are you doing? Whoever thought it was a good idea for you to become a pastor? And all the confidence seeps away. And I forget all the steps that the Lord took us through in order to send us into ministry. And I rewrite, and I only remember the bad stuff. Now, that's me. If my wife was standing here, she would probably tell more of a story about her feelings about the children. When something was really wrong with one of the children, she will forget the past and rewrite history and forget the Lord we can trust. What about you? Now, why would God lead us to such a position? We know we've seen that he's leading, haven't we? I mean, he's led them all the way. He's taken them to this, this place, the camp by the Red Sea. Why would he take them there knowing full well that Pharaoh's going to come after? Why would God do that? God actually gives us the answer in this passage. Look at chapter 14, verse 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And then in chapter, the same chapter, reading on into verse 7, uh, excuse me, I've written the wrong thing down. Oh yeah, verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen, Horsemen, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh. So have we yet figured out why God is doing this? It's so that he can gain glory. Thank you. Glory. All this is to get glory for God. Now, if you or I were to be very concerned about our own glory, we would be a complete egotist, and maybe even a psychopath. But it's different with God. The word glory in the Old Testament literally means weight, heavy, weighty. So the most glorious substance that they have is gold. Because gold is weighty. It's substantial. It's heavy. Glory means the permanent as against the temporary. Glory means the important, the substantial, as against the unimportant and trivial. Glory means the ultimately real, as against the unreal. And when the Bible talks about God's glory, it's talking about his weightiness. It means that compared to anything else in all creation, God alone is permanent, real, and God alone matters. 
compared to anything else, only God matters. If you drop an object that is heavier than water onto water, there is a splash because the heavier thing makes the water make way. If you drop something onto ice that is heavier than ice, the ice quakes and makes way. I recently tested the ice on top of our goldfish pond with my foot. I regretted it because I was heavier than the ice and got a boot full of water. The ice made way, it quaked. And when the reality of God comes down into a person's life, he moves everything around because he's glorious. And when the reality of God comes down into an Israelite's life, everything is rearranged. Everything is re-engineered. All the furniture gets moved around. Because in the Bible, when God comes down, there is glory. And therefore, in the Bible, when God comes down, there is an earthquake. You might have noticed that. We're going to see this in a few weeks. When God actually comes down in his glory to the top of a mountain, Mount Sinai, the earth shakes because he's so glorious. When God comes into the room on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes, God the Spirit comes, the room shakes because he's so glorious. Because God is more glorious than anything else. Compared to him, everything else has no weight. And whenever God's reality comes into our lives, everything is shaken. And so the most loving thing God can do for you is to show you his glory. Do you know that? The most loving thing God can do for you is show you his glory. That's what he's doing here. He's going to show the Israelites his glory. Remember our principle today, the life of faith is a relationship of trust that must go ever deeper. And we've got to learn to trust the God of glory. He will, is leading even when your heart fails. He's loving even when your heart's deceiving you. And finally, he will bring you through as a new creation. He will bring you through. Because by now we're ready for the great rescue, aren't we? Even though the chips are down, even though the odds are stacked against them, we know enough by now to believe that God will do something beyond all expectation. And he says in verse 15, tell the Israelites to move on. Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. That's a double miracle, isn't it? Not only going through it, but the ground is dry. And verse 19 points out that this pillar that's been going in front, the pillar that looks like cloud in the day, the pillar that looks like fire by night, is actually a pillar surrounding a presence called the angel of God, the messenger, the angel of the Lord. He's, we've met him before in Genesis with Abraham. We will see him again. This messenger Many people believe that this is Jesus himself, the Son of God, before his incarnation, coming to the aid of his people. He moves from in front of the Israelites to behind them, between them and the Egyptians. And what he's saying is, if you want to come after these people, you're going to have to come through me. He darkens the path of the Egyptians. He lights the way for the Israelites. And then God sends the wind. 
And in the original language, wind, the word wind is the same word as the word spirit. Your spirit, your breath. God's spirit, God's breath, the wind comes. An incredibly powerful wind and it drives back the waters of the sea, creating walls of water on either side and a pathway that's been dried off. So the Israelites walk through on dry ground and you probably know the rest. Hardening their hearts again, the soldiers are hell-bent on pursuit and capture. They drive the horses and chariots onto the seabed and they follow them right into the sea. They will not give up. And once again, the Israelites really aren't the heroes. There's only one hero in the story, and that's the Lord. And in verse 24, he looks down from this pillar at the army, and he throws them into confusion. The waters come back at God's command, and they sweep in across these Egyptians, and the wheels come off. A little bit more than my friend's car. The wheels come off the chariots. Perhaps the water coming in softens the ground and off they break. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The dawn has come. The Egyptians are fleeing towards it. The Lord sweeps them into the sea. The waters flow back and they cover the chariots and horsemen. That entire army, not one of them survived. Free at last. Now, we mustn't miss a really big Bible picture here. There's a really wonderful, big, big Bible picture theme here going on. Remember about the wind, the spirit blowing, and the land and the sea being parted, and people coming through. And what does this remind us of in our Bibles? The creation, the very beginning of all things. When God took a formless void, and he made it formed and habitable, and the water's Dark waters are covering the surface of the earth. And God said, let there be light. And he brought light and dark. And God said, let dry ground appear. And water separated off and dry ground appeared, making life possible for those of us that need to live on the land. And God saw it and said that it was good. And when he had populated it with the creatures and the vegetation and all the beautiful things that God had made, he finally brought a people, Adam and his wife, later named Eve, and he made them to rule his creation and bring him glory in the world. That's the creation. We know that that went badly, badly wrong. And so there was a second time that God did this, and that was in the time of Noah, an extraordinary catastrophic deluge that destroyed humankind from the face of the earth. A catastrophic flood, destruction. But what did God do? He saved Noah and his family in, an, in a floating ark, and brought them down on top of a mountain. And what happened? The waters went back. Dry ground appeared. The creatures came out. And God's people were saved to bring him glory in the world. And now with Israel, he's doing it again. Because God saves us in order that we would become a new people. We bring him glory in our lives by trust. Now what about you, Christian Brother and sister, what about you? In a few weeks' time, we're going to have, uh, God willing, we'll have a baptism service here. We'll have a pool of water, probably over there. We're going to take some people, and we're going to plunge them into the water. And we will bring them up, I promise. And they will come out. And that right represents going from the old way of life to the new, 
being washed of all the past and being brought to the new life and being united with Jesus Christ, who himself was baptized in the River Jordan and came up and the heavens split and a voice said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so the Christian church is God's new creation come through the waters on the dry land as the people of God to love him, trust him and live for him in this world. Paul was later to say, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. What does this show us? When God rescues his people, he brings them through as a new creation. He creates a people for himself to bring him glory on the earth. The life of faith is a relationship of trust. And that relationship needs to be ever-deepening. The Bible can be summed up in two words. Trust me. He's leading even when your heart fails. He's loving even when your heart deceives. He will take you through this, whatever it is. We know he will. And he will bring glory to himself through making you a new creation. I'm going to read a psalm to close. And uh, let's just close our eyes and just have a moment of quiet. And land uh, in this good place, Psalm 131. Musicians, please do uh, come and join us. Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, church, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Moses said, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Amen.